My topic today is the most important work in all the world that God has called every true Christian to do. But before I give this presentation today, I'm so pleased to introduce someone who's precious to all of us. That is my wife, Beverly, who is arriving with something that I feel almost tempted to steal her thunder and tell you what it is, but I'm going home with her this evening. And she has an excellent message that will inspire you. Would you welcome her? Happy Sabbath, everyone. In his wonderful book entitled The Eagle Christian, Kenneth Price begins with a quote from Genesis. And God created every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was very good. For a moment or two, let's look at the king of the birds. Isn't he beautiful? I know he's only a look-alike, but I think he looks quite good. And I brought him this morning for the sake of the boys and girls. Here are some interesting facts about these magnificent birds. This is what we call, of course, the bald eagle. It has a brown feathered body with white feathered head and tail. And like its relative, other relative, the golden eagle, which is brown all over, but has a shimmering, shimmering golden head. Why they call it bald, I'm not quite sure, but probably because from a distance, it looks like it has no feathers on its head. But as you come closer, of course, we can see just how majestic it really is. These birds mate for life, and then they build a nest together where they usually stay for the remainder of their lives. And they can live up to 20 to 30 years in the wild, but if they're in a zoo or a park, they can live up to 50 years. The bald eagle eats mainly fish, and so they usually build their nest near a lake or a river. If the fish are scarce, they will eat rabbits and water birds. An adult bird can swoop down and catch a fish in his talons without getting his feathers wet. On June 20, 1782, the Continental Congress adopted the bald eagle as the central figure of the great seal of the United States. These beautiful birds have 7,000 feathers. Now, I didn't count them, but apparently someone has. And, of course, this means that preening and cleaning them is quite a business. And how they do it is this. They take each feather in their beak, and as they pull it through, they exhale, like poof. And so that would be like a, a steam cleaning job. And it sure makes our taking a shower look a lot easier, doesn't it? The bald eagle also has a special organ in his tail full of oil. And he takes this oil and puts it all over his feathers, which makes him waterproof, which means he never has to take his umbrella with him. An eagle's wing and tail feathers are incredibly strong. They are made out of keratin, the same as our finger and toenails. Their wingspan can be up to eight feet across from tip to tip, and these are powerful. These wings can take them up to 14,000 feet with little effort. And it also helps them to swoop down on their prey with incredible speed. Some of them have been clocked up to 200 miles per hour in a dive. But they usually cruise around at 30 to 50 miles. All of this probably explains why the Bible uses the, these beautiful birds so many times. And when we are tired and weary in the battle of life, we can be refreshed as we read the words of Isaiah 40, verse 31, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar like on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Just as a mother eagle covers and spreads her wings to protect her young ones in a raging storm, we can expect our Heavenly Father to cover and protect us 
in the last great storm that's coming on this, on this earth. And we read in Psalm 91, verse 4, these beautiful words. He will keep you safe from all hidden dangers and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. topic today is the most important work in all the world that every true believer is called and commanded by Almighty God to do. I want you to take your Bibles and turn over here to Romans 1, 14 to 16. Romans chapter 1 verses 14 to 16. Romans, the first chapter. The words of St. Paul. Romans 1, verse 14 and onwards. I want you to notice these important words. Verse 14, onwards. I'm obligated, King James Version says, I'm a debtor. I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager or ready to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We have these three important phrases. Firstly, I'm a debtor, I'm obligated. A Christian is obligated to every person in the world. I'm a debtor. Number two, he says, I'm ready. The NIV says, I'm eager, even stronger. And then he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Therefore, listen carefully, evangelism is the most important work in all the world. What is evangelism? Let me tell you what evangelism is not. Evangelism is not doing welfare work. Is welfare work important? Well, in many parts of the world, it's the difference between life and death, physical life and death. Therefore, it's important. But that's not evangelism. It is not holding health seminars or establishing hospitals to heal the sick. That's not evangelism. That may, on some rare occasions, help evangelism. But that's not evangelism. It is not sitting on committees in the church. After the conference committee has sat and deliberated for a hundred years, they have not accomplished one bit of evangelism. That's not evangelism. It is not healing the sick. How we wish that we might heal every person who is suffering from some disease. ADRA is a magnificent organization and I recommend it to every person. But ADRA doesn't do evangelism. ADRA helps people. That is tremendously important. But that, all of these good works are not evangelism. The Greek word for gospel, as you all know by now, is good news. And the Greek word for evangelism is the word gospel with a few other letters added on. Evangelism means to gospelize. That's what the Greek says. The very Greek word, when it uses the word evangelism, means gospelize. Evangelism is telling people in various ways all about Jesus, about his birth, his life, his holiness, his love, his death on the cross for the sins of the whole wide world, his resurrection, his intercession in heaven, and his coming again. That's what evangelism is to gospelize. What is the work of the church? 
What is the work of the Christian? The church, my dearly beloved friends, is never called to get involved in politics. We have many fine Christians in Washington today who have powerful lobbying groups and they're trying to get laws passed. That is not the work of the church. That is the work of the politician. The work of the church is not to get involved at all in great business enterprises, to build supermarkets and malls or to do any of those things. That is not the work of the church. Evangelism, gospelizing, is God's way of saving lost sinners. The reason there is so very little evangelism in our church today is because people do not really believe in the gospel or believe in the Bible. Because the Bible makes it very, very plain that people outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether they are Baptists or Methodists or Catholics or Muslims, or Hindus, or Buddhists, any person who doesn't have a personal living experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is in a state of lostness. And evangelism is God's way of saving lost sinners. Would you come over here to Ephesians 2, verse 12 and 13? It is because of our superficial knowledge of the Bible that evangelism today is a dying art. One evangelist who was a friend of mine, Ron Helverson, wears a sweatshirt, a t-shirt, and on it it says, Evangelist, Threatened Species. Please look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse, shall we read, verse 12 and onwards, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Do not tell me that good people are saved. No. Good people and bad people without Christ are without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Evangelism is the preaching of the gospel. Evangelism is gospelizing. It is upholding the Lord Jesus Christ and particularly the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. When Jesus Christ is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit as man's only hope, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, Mighty miracles of grace are performed in human hearts. Can I say that again? When gospelizing is done in the power of the Holy Spirit, mighty works of grace, saving acts of divine redemption are performed in human hearts. This is God's way of saving the lost. Let me tell you today some stories that I am acquainted with that show the great power of God when gospelizing is done. Don't you remember the story of the woman at the well? An audience of one, never despise an audience of one. It was noon time and Jesus was tired and he said to the woman, give me something to drink. She said, how can you, a Jew, ask of me, a Samaritan woman, a drink? Jesus said, if you knew the one who was talking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then he told her her whole life story and she goes back and she tells all the men in the village with whom she was quite well acquainted and they come out and they hear Jesus and these people are saved for the kingdom of God. They were lost, but they were saved. 
Then don't you know the story that is recorded in the book of Acts? You've heard me read it to you on many occasions. How Philip was in the desert. Long comes a chariot. And in the chariot there is a man from Ethiopia who works for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And he's sitting in his chariot because he's coming back from Jerusalem because he was immersed in the Jewish religion, even though he was an Ethiopian. But he was not saved. And he's reading there from the book of Isaiah, and the Spirit of God says to Philip, it's time for you to do some gospelizing, evangelizing, And he goes up and the man is reading Isaiah 53 but does not understand it. And so Philip describes to him that Jesus is the Lamb of God who made a perfect sacrificial atonement for the sins of the world. He was an evangelist, was Philip. And then they came to a pool of water in the desert and they both went down into the water and he baptized the Ethiopian man who went on his way rejoicing. That, my dear friend, is the work of the church. The men who've made the greatest impact for God in the history of the world have been gospelizers. I have lived in America since the beginning of 1986 and I was quick to discover because I came from a background of evangelism that evangelism was almost a dirty word in the church in North America and people did not like it. This led me to believe that they could not understand the gospel because the word evangelism means gospelizing. And the men who've made the greatest impact in the history of the whole human race have been evangelists or gospelizers. Jesus our Lord, the greatest of the apostles, St. Paul, and then Peter and the rest of them and Philip and Stephen, they were evangelists. I find it very hard to understand how a person can profess to believe in Christ and not believe in evangelism. Let me tell you some stories. I think today of the man who's been my hero for 40 years, a little Englishman. I think he was only five foot two, eyes of blue, who wore a black clergyman's robe and a wig (laughs) right down to his shoulders though he did not need it long silver golden hair an Oxford scholar a master of Oxford an Anglican clergyman who like most people in the world today even in the church was a lost soul until his famous heartwarming experience when he discovered the gospel or when the gospel discovered him. What a terrible condition England was in today, in those days. Even worse than it is, I should say, today. About a quarter of the houses in London were grog shops, and you all know what grog is. Places where people would go and become blind drunk. The mining condition was so bad that little children worked in the mines for up to 16 or 17 hours a day, seven, five, six, seven, eight, nine years of age. Mothers never, hardly ever came up out of the mines. They had their babies in the mines. And John Wesley cast out of the Church of England because of his fearless proclamation of the gospel. The gospel has had few enemies among the hierarchy. Cast out of the Church of England, my mother church, who would go out and start preaching at four o'clock in the morning before the sun came up to the miners on their way to work traveled around England and then across the Atlantic and then all through Scotland and Ireland time after time after time until he was in his 80s preaching 42,000 sermons saving England from a bloody revolution such as swept France. He did more for England and the world than any person of his day because he was a gospelizer 
My first brush with evangelism happened when I was six years of age in Brisbane. In the center of Brisbane, which is in South Queensland, there is a magnificent city hall with a great pipe organ. It still is there today. I saw it when I went home a year or so back. And there came an American evangelist wearing a white suit. His name was Pastor Clifford Reeves. And my mother received a handbill in the mail and she went to the mission. Oh, God forbid that people should talk about an effort. Oh, we're running an effort. What a legalistic, awful term. It's an effort. It's like giving birth to barbed wire. It is an effort. Oh, it's so painful. Our pastor is running an effort. Who would want to join a church after going to an effort? This was not an effort. This was a mission. And I can remember the great pipe organ thundering and a 150 voice choir singing, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life and a man preaching the gospel. That's when I decided that I would be an evangelist because of Clifford Reeves. And then I can remember after I went to college, got converted. I came home to Brisbane and went to hear the man that I considered still today to be the greatest evangelist who ever came out of our church. Pastor Jeffrey Radcliffe, who came to America, did great work for God, but was buried. I've never heard a man preach like Jeff Radcliffe huge man with great shoulders and a shock of black wavy hair and his wife would play the Hammond organ. What a team they were. And that night Pastor Radcliffe preached on the judgment hour. And as I sat there as a student from Avondale College, I doubted if I would make it home because of the judgments of God coming. That's preaching. Preaching that puts you to sleep is an abomination and a curse. There's only one thing worse than sleeping people in the, in the uh, pews, and that is a sleeping man behind the pulpit, and we have plenty of those. Dead men preaching to dead bodies in the pews. But Jeffrey Radcliffe was not a dead man. He was a preacher of righteousness. He used to shout a bit. In fact, when I came over here, I was told by some insipid pastors, we don't like you to talk loud. We build relationships. Whatever happened to men? A great evangelist that made a great impact upon me was Pastor HMS Richards. He came to Avondale College. I was in theology and of course we knew everything. We knew everything about preaching. We knew all the theology there was. We were empty-headed nincompoops. <laughs> and there came this tall man, somewhat ungainly in his, how he used his arms. His arms seemed to be too long. And after the sermon I was moved. I have never forgotten the sermon, which was entitled The Unsparing God, taken from Peter. If God spared not the angels, if God spared not the people before the flood, if God spared not Sodom and Gomorrah, then Romans 8, and God spared not his own son, the unsparing God. Perhaps the greatest leader that the Adventist church had in North America was that man who was never recognized as an official leader, HMS Richards. The man who started the voice of prophecy in a chicken coop. A man of God. Great man of God. His book, Feed My Sheep, is the greatest book on evangelism and preaching that has ever been written. I can think in Africa on a dark evening of being sent down a jungle road with a gun in my back. 
surrounded by armed soldiers with submachine guns. Because I had refused to appear on a certain television national program in Harare, Zimbabwe, where I was invited to attack another church, I said, I will not do that. I'm here to preach the gospel, not to attack other churches. Because I refused to do this, this man, in anger and rage, cursed me and told me, get off this property, and I was made to march down this jungle road with machine guns. And I thought, maybe this is the end. But after he had turned back in his Peugeot motor car, after cursing me, I was surrounded by those black souls who said, who said to me, Pastor Carter, you have nothing to fear because we come to your meetings and we have accepted Jesus. The gospel indeed, my friend, is the power of God unto salvation. What a story I told the people that night in the meeting. Then in Manila, at the PICC, the Filipino International Conference Center, with members of the Marcus family and admirals and generals and so many people in attendance, one night I received a letter from a man who said, I have been following a man all day because of my intent to kill him. I am a thief and I am a murderer and I have been sitting here tonight in your meeting with a knife because the man is in the meeting and tonight I was going to kill him after the meeting. But he said, as I heard you gospelizing, telling about Jesus, I put the knife away and now I want to become a Christian and be baptized. It is the power of God unto salvation. Then in Manila, as I've told some of you, I had the privilege of going on to death row and preaching to young men who were destined to die because they were assassins. Preaching to those young men until tears came to their eyes, telling them about Christ and his cross, that he had gone to the electric chair, as it were, for them. And then seeing other young men crowd around me and raise their hands and cry and going with my colleague, Pastor Graham Bradford from Australia and Avondale College into the adjoining room where I baptized those young men in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the problem with most of us in this church and in this country that we have too much religion and not enough gospel not enough Christ I can remember as a boy at a college who knew a great deal but slightly less than when he was a theology student going to a little town in New South Wales in fact in South New South Wales where David was born the town of Parks because an American evangelist was running a television program, God bless him forever, because he was in the league of HMS Richards, Pastor George Vanderman, a man of courage and a man of grace, a gentleman, not an uncouth ranter or raver, but a Christian gentleman. Did you know that Christ will make you well-mannered? Too bad it has been said that most Christians are washed, but they're not ironed. But George Vanderman was not only washed, he had been ironed. He was a man of great grace, and he became my friend. And I can remember watching it is written, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I can remember some folks who watched the telecast, Mr. and Mrs. Ward, and I can remember Beverly and, and uh, me, we drove out to their station or their farm or their ranch at a little place by the name of Ganumbala. And there we studied the word of God with them and they gave their hearts to Christ because of the telecast, George Vanderman. The gospel changes the life. It is not a dead formal religion. I want to tell to every person here in this church, and especially the Sabbath school teachers, sometimes I think you, too, you talk too much about it, and you, we don't live it enough. 
I think sometimes we have people who delight in proving how smart they are and how they know everything about the gospel, but they've never won a soul to Christ in their lives. That to me is not gospelizing. That is religionizing. You see, the devil knows all the right words. But the gospel changes the life. It is not a dead formal religion. As you know, in Russia and Ukraine, we have seen a modern day Pentecost such as we've never seen in America because of our unbelief in this country. We've seen almost three million people attend our meetings. Glory be to God. Can you say glory be to God? We've seen 40 new churches raised up of 15,000 new members, previous atheists, communists, skeptics, and drunkards. And one of the great problems here is that a church administrator said to me, he said, Brother John, our people here and our leaders do not understand the power of God because they've never seen it. They think the power of God is holding a committee meeting. How little they know. This is a handmade crucifix that I treasure, fashioned by the hands of a KGB colonel who is in charge of indoctrinating the young people of Ukraine in atheism and communism and Marxism. Can you imagine a KGB colonel making this with his own hand and bringing to me on the day of his baptism, the symbol of our Christ. Let the skeptic be quiet. What does he know? The gospel is the power of God to salvation. There's no limit to the power of the gospel. It is not a theory to be debated. Oh, some people think it's a theory to be debated. I personally get tired of all the debates in the church by people who are too lazy to go out into the real world. The gospel is the power of God. I say to you today, woe to the church, woe to the world when evangelism dies. It has been said that the true church starts as a movement. A movement. What is the word? Movement. It is called a sect. It generally has persecution. It is based upon fiery preaching. The preachers are zealous. They shout a lot. They have fire. They have life. They help to write the book of Acts. It is a movement. And then the church moves from being a movement to a museum where the members do not go out in the cold world, but they love to go to church to, to, to dissect. And they have seminars where they talk about analysis. It has been called the paralysis of analysis. The church is a museum. And the church deals at a museum only has relics of the past. And so those people talk about what the pioneers of the church said. What? Jones and Wagner said. That's all they talk about. They talk about the past. It is a museum. And death is coming. And in the museum church, evangelism is despised. And the third stage, the first stage is movement. Second stage, museum. And the third stage is mausoleum mausoleum which means magnificent tomb in the city of Kiev I was taken under one of the great orthodox cathedrals into a, an area of caves where they have scores and scores of dead priests you can go and look at them been there for hundreds of years they say it is the most sacred spot in all of Ukraine it is the deadest spot it is a mausoleum. And the church of the mausoleum is very interested in keeping up appearances. 
The goal of the church of the mausoleum is to safeguard the organization, to deny truth and reality, to get rid of troublemakers, to safeguard the retirement funds. The church of the mausoleum is led by men who have never got their feet wet in the waters of evangelism. And they think that activity and talking about it and affirming that which is traditional is holiness. It is deadness. The Bible says it has a, a name that lives but is dead. Where would I think the church is in North America? I would personally think somewhere between museum and mausoleum. And I say that from observation, not from criticism. It's a fact. We need to be realistic and get out of the attitude of denial. I think of one large church that I visited a number of years ago. It once had 2,500 members. It now has 100 members. It is opposed to evangelism because I could have gone to that church. But the church board said, we do not believe in evangelism. We hate evangelism. And yet, eight or nine years after they told me they hated evangelism, the leader of their board came to me and said, we're dying, we're about to close the doors, would you come back? I said, no, your church is finished. Sell it, give it to somebody else. You are unworthy. But they don't need to close the doors because they have investments in the bank the church once had very wealthy members. They said to me, we can last for a thousand years. We can pay the clergy. We can keep the air conditioning running for a thousand years. A mausoleum. Woe to the church and woe to the world when evangelism dies because evangelism elevates society. It wipes out crime it prevents child abuse. It destroys alcoholism. It grows prosperity like a tree. And it produces health and happiness. Why is evangelism rejected by many church leaders in North America and in my own home country of Australia? Why is evangelism rejected by many church leaders, pastors, church board members, committee members, conference members, and lay preachers? Let me tell you the truth. Firstly, it's hard. In the days of John Wesley, the pastor was a tea-drinking parson who was led by a fox-hunting bishop. It's hard How can we call ourselves Christians and be lazy? Yes. Tell me that. Number two, they say it's expensive. That makes me feel like throwing up. I'll tell you why. Willie Jordan, who was a dear friend of ours who came to Ukraine, has a nephew. His name is Greg Lowry. He's run a series of meetings here in Los Angeles that lasted three days. Three days. They had a thousand non-believers attend the meetings plus church members. The budget was 1.6 million. Oh, you gasp. How dare you gasp? Those people are doing what is right because they have faith. Amen. James White built a house in Battle Creek, then ran an evangelistic campaign. The cost of the campaign, if my memory serves me correctly, was six times the price of a house. That means here in Arcadia, if we ran an evangelistic campaign and kept up with James White, we would spend uh, $5 million. People say, but we can't do this. That is why the church in the Western world is dying because the church does not put its money into the cross of Christ. We throw to the cross of Christ peanuts. While singing in the cross of Christ, I glory, we throw peanuts. 
Think what would happen if in our own church we said we will take 10 great cities and we will run an evangelistic campaign in the great city of New York and we will have a budget of at least 10 million. People say, 10 million? How much does it cost to run a church bureaucracy? Millions and millions and millions and millions. My friend, we need to be converted on these subjects. And then there is the third reason why evangelism is not done. Firstly, because of lazy people, lazy members, lazy pastors, lazy leaders, lazy people like you and me. And number two, it's too expensive. We'll spend money on conferences and world trips and all of those things. But peanuts for Jesus. The third reason is it doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is because God cannot work through unbelieving people. It works when people have faith in God. The statement it doesn't work is a self-fulfilling prophecy and people talk themselves into failure. Now you know I have engaged in public evangelism now for 40 years. I'd like to do it for another 40 years. There are different ways to do evangelism. Christian education can be evangelism. If Christ is preached and if young people are led to Christ. And because we believe in Christian education, the Carter Report is making available for the next, next school calendar year grants of $10,000 to the parents of this congregation. We're going to put our money where our mouths are. We're going to give to the parents whose children, ah, but listen, they must attend this church. They must get A's. They must have great attendance and great behavior. And we're going to spend among them $10,000. I pray God that people who are in this church who believe in evangelism through Christian education will go come and put some money in my pocket. Evangelism can be done in small groups where people open the Bible, not where they just go to sit around and gossip. We believe in child evangelism. Thank God for Marcella Sampayan who has turned the children, the cradle roll division upside down. She doesn't just talk. When I'm running a campaign in a few weeks in this church, Marcella's going to be running a campaign across in the auditorium. Going to start on the same subjects. Bless you, Marcella. Small groups. There's television evangelism. I believe strongly in television evangelism. That's why I support 3ABN. People say, well, what right have they got to do this? Hasn't anybody told them they can't do it? Yeah, lots of people. Lots of losers. But when Danny and Linda are talking about Jesus on 3ABN Live, they are doing evangelism. Amen. Let us support 3ABN. And true television evangelists, and there are some. I think of the Samarodkins, the first secretary of the Communist Party. The first secretary of the Communist Party in Nizhny Novgorod who today is an evangelist in our church because he watched this church service on television in Gorky. Goodness me. And then there are public meetings that I've specialized in. People say it doesn't work anymore. Well, it may not work for the lazy, the faithless, but it seems to work for some people like Billy Graham. And it worked for John Wesley. And it worked for lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of other people. What we need is more vision and more faith and more courage and more obedience and less wimpiness. There are two great reasons why the church must do evangelism. 
Besides the reason that if the church doesn't do evangelism, the church will become dead as a proverbial dodo. If the church doesn't do evangelism, it'll become as dead as proverbial dodo. Don't come to me after church and say, I want to talk about this. I want to discuss this. I want to analyze this in the church. Have you read this something in the review? What do you think about this? Don't bore me to tears. Stop talking. Do it. People said to me, but you can't do it. It's impossible for you to do it because you don't have any money, says who? Why, just this week, somebody sent us 20,000. The week before, somebody sent me 51,000 in stocks that I cashed immediately and got 51,000 for. Because I don't have faith in Wall Street. (laughs) And God does give us money. We have been able to put millions of dollars into Russia more than any other evangelistic organization. Because God blesses faith. And out there in television land, there's a bunch of people who are tired of the status quo and they say, we're going to give our money where we see the results. So thank you for supporting 3ABN. Thank you for supporting the Carter Report. Just keep it up. (laughs) There are two great reasons why we must do evangelism. Firstly, Calvary and the souls of men. Jesus died for the world. It's the church's job to tell the world. People say you don't think that people are going to perish because the church doesn't do its job to you. Well, that's exactly what the Bible teaches, my unbelieving friend. Jesus hung on the cross. He died for the sins of the world. God gave his own son. He went through hell to save the world. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, he says. People say, why did he say that? They can be saved anyhow. They will not be saved unless they know Calvary in the souls of men. The greatest argument. And number two, the times in which we find ourselves where men and women are desperate with fear, unbelief, and uncertainty. Events in the world If these events don't wake us up, my friend, it is because we are too far gone. But events in the world tell us that shadows are falling and death's night is coming, coming for you and for me. And upon the darkness of the world, the sun of righteousness must arise with healing in his wings. The times demand it. September 11, and all the things that will proceed, demand it. Therefore, let this be our watchword. One, I am obligated to all men. I am a debtor. Number two, I'm ready and eager to preach the gospel. And number three, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Amen. Amen and amen. Please kneel. Father, we thank you today for the cross of our Lord. We thank you that he left the glory land and came down here to seek and to save that which was lost and to pay the ransom price. We recognize today, our Father, 
that we cannot be saved by natural religion, by being sincere, by living up to all the light we've ever had, because that would mean we're saved through the same system as the heathen believe in. A righteousness by works. Help us to know today that if there had been any other way than salvation through the blood, he would not have bled and died. And help us to realize that his blood speaks to our hearts today. And the blood of Jesus is the greatest argument why we must evangelize, gospelize. Dear Father, teach us also to understand the times in which we live. We believe that blindness in part has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. We believe that a great blindness has come upon us as a church and as a people and as individuals. Because we are so engrossed with the cares of this life, we're so busy making and living that we're not making any preparation for a dying. Help us to realize that the hour of his judgment has come. And the time indeed is just going away. The sands of time are running through our very fingers. And though midnight is coming, it is at this hour of desperate need that the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Dear Father, speak to our own hearts personally. Help us not to fall into the terrible pit of unbelief and sin whereby we will walk out of church and say, well, wasn't that interesting? Wasn't that great? Well, I wonder what the conference is going to do now. Wonder how much money they're going to put into evangelism. Wonder what the general conference is going to do. Help us, dear Father, to stop passing the buck and to do what many of us have forgotten how to do, and that is to accept our own personal responsibilities. Amen. Help us, dear Father, not to think the big brother is going to bail us out, but help us to realize that every one of us is called to be an evangelist according to the gifts that God has given us. That none of us are called to debate about the gospel and to argue about the gospel, but to win souls to Christ. Bless this church. Bless Danny and Linda. Bless Ron Halverson and all the faithful evangelists in North America and in Australia who are doing their best against great odds of opposition, not so much from the world, but from the church. And might it be that you will revive your people in these latter days. Bless this church. Bless these new folks who have joined the church today. Save them from the overwhelming apathy that prevails in the land. And grant us today a personal and sweet and living experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May we all be his gospelizers to his glory in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen.